The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Tom McKenzie. And I'm Caroline Hepgill. Welcome to the programme and welcome to Tom, because I think this is the first time you've been on the UK Politics programme and it's a really interesting day because, Ewan, we've got a new leader north of the border. The SNP has voted in Hamza Youssef to take over from Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah, the bookie's favourite won, but it was a lot closer than many people expected. Hamza Youssef has been elected as Nicola Sturgeon's successor as SNP leader and as Scotland's next First Minister. In the end, the establishment candidate won by 52 to 48, a, a familiar, uh, uh, breakdown. <laughs> yeah, familiar okay. breakdown uh, on the second round with Finance Secretary Kate Forbes widely seen as impressing during the campaign, but not quite uh, taking the prize. Uh, she did come pretty close to winning. Hamza, only 37 years old, but he does bring plenty of experience to the job. He was appointed the junior minister 10 years ago. Can you believe it? 10 years at 10 years in his in his at 27. Mm. And he's also served as Justice Secretary and most recently as Health Secretary. And notably, he becomes the first Muslim to lead a major UK political party. But following Nicola Sturgeon, one of the most impressive politicians, let's be honest, in the UK is going to be pretty tough. I think it's going to be especially tough because this is obviously that the whole issue around uh, independence is one where there will be continuity, but it's about how the SNP surely deals with the domestic issues within Scotland that uh, they've had quite a patchy record on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those domestic uh, things have been out of focus, haven't they, as, as we've talked about independence. But I think perhaps they're going to come back into focus because the SNP does run schools and hospitals in Scotland. And I think there will be the other parties will want to push their record uh, to the fore. And on independence, there are a lot of tricky questions uh, to answer on that as well. And Nicola Sturgeon's plan, which was to have a de facto referendum at the next general election. Well, I think that is starting to unravel as well. So there's going to be a big debate in the SNP. Uh, as to what comes next. And, and to, to that point, not surprising, he came out with a message of, of unity mm. uh, for the party. But how realistic is that, given the deep divisions on that question of how to pursue that independence agenda? 
Yeah, and there were also divisions which were quite uncomfortable, I think, for the SNP on issues of gender as well. Of course, the uh, the gender recon- the gender reform act controversial in Scotland. Uh, and Kate Forbes takes a very strong view on that, which was different to Hamza Yusuf's. And that was also uncomfortable for the party. So, of course, they've had this uh, unifying leader for so many years who've kept, kept these things sort of under wraps. And now some of them are starting to, to come to the surface. And that's tricky. Yeah, absolutely. About um, LGBTQ plus rights. Uh, yes, I think this is going to be um, perhaps one of the big debate points going forwards um, with the Scottish National Party. Uh, but really interesting, um, Hamza Youssef and what happens uh, in Scotland. Um, also want to turn our attention, though, to the news that we um, brought to you a couple of weeks ago. So we always like to bring a bit of economics into our political thinking on the politics uh, podcast. So this relatively unknown bank in California that you surely all know by now, uh, this is Silicon Valley Bank. Lizzie Burden was uh, in Downing Street interviewing the city minister on the deal for Silicon Valley Bank UK. This morning, Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, has been answering questions about actually how Britain came to negotiate the sale of the bank for a pound. I don't think we are at all in the place we were in in 2007 8. Mm. We're in a very different place to then. Mm. But you know, we have to be very vigilant. So, you know, if I give you the answer, I don't think there's a problem going forward. Mm. I do not want to give you for a mm. moment the idea that we are not very vigilant mm. because we are. We are in a period of very heightened, you know, mm. frankly, tension and alertness. Yeah. So that was Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor. Uh, He was (laughs) speaking to the Treasury Select Committee then this morning about how, you know, the banking stresses that we're seeing, the resolution of SVB UK is one thing, but there are still stresses and concerns about the solidity of the financial system. Yeah, well, let's bring in our UK uh, economy reporter, Lucy White. Lucy, you were watching Andrew Bailey uh, this morning as well, weren't you? Bring us some of what he said, uh, what he was quizzed about by the MPs. I think the key takeaway um, that Andrew Bailey is trying to get across at the moment is that the UK banking system is very well capitalised. No one is expecting a kind of, you know, um, house of cards to be falling down here. Um, you know, a lot of the reforms that have taken place since the financial crisis um, are, are, are kind of, you know, coming into into play now. Um, you know, the UK um, banking resolution framework. Um, and I think his, his key takeaway from this morning was that that was you know, used well in the case of Silicon Valley Bank. You know, eventually it was, um, you know, sold to HSBC, the UK entity. Um, but the, the, the resolution framework was there and was ready to, to be used if necessary. We know that in the US, the Federal Reserve has come under scrutiny for its oversight of Silicon Valley Bank, particularly the Federal Reserve in, in San Francisco. And we know the Fed's going to be doing a review of that oversight. Are similar measures underway or do UK regulators, does the Bank of England and its counterparties think that, they, that they're in a solid enough position? Are they, are they looking at the tools at their disposal? Are they looking to kind of stress test the regulatory framework? I think they're, they're, they're very happy with the, the sort of periodic stress test that they do at the moment. You know, the last time one of those was done, um, you know, there were, there were very few problems shown. Um, you know, as Andrew Bailey said in the clip that you heard, you know, he's, you know, they don't want to seem complacent. You know, no one ever wants to, uh, you know, say that everything's going to be absolutely fine. And we are, as you say, in a period of heightened tension at the moment. So, as, as he said, mm. um, so you know, I think they are they are scrutinising, you know, the banking system. But no one's kind of expecting any more sort of major collapses right now. And, you know, they're they're very happy with the tools at their disposal. Um, Tom, you and I were watching um, certainly quite a bit of what Andrew Bailey was talking about this morning. Um, In terms of 
what it means for tech in the UK. Again, this is an area that is really in focus from the UK government, of course, because they want to grow startup businesses, have them launch as IPOs, you know, on the London Stock Exchange, <laughs> long route, right, between the startup and then ending up on the London Stock Exchange. And yet that is a, a real imperative for the UK. What do you think it means for UK tech to have SVB UK taken over by HSBC? Well, well this is a Chancellor who said he wants to see, Chancellor Hunt, of course, Jeremy Hunt, has said he wants to turn the UK into the next Silicon Valley. A key component of the tech ecosystem here, as it was in the US, was Silicon Valley Bank. And the fact that they would bank these very risky startups, they would provide venture capital loans, mm. they would provide all sorts of services to this ecosystem that is now questionably not there anymore. Is HSBC, and I was talking to some tech investors or tech uh, entrepreneurs over the weekend, they're saying, you know, is HSBC really going to be taking on the risk that SVB did? Probably not. So that does lead to the question as to to what extent this leads to a further freeze in funding conditions. Funding conditions for the tech ecosystem is already incredibly challenging. If you're looking to raise additional rounds of capital as a startup or a founder, now is a challenging time anyway, even before this collapse of SVP. So it just exacerbates that problem. Yeah, and also that is the one area, risk, isn't it, that the government did have to guarantee for HSBC because they're a kind of ring fence bank. They had to be careful about how much risk they take on. So that's sort of the one area where the government had to had to think about that absolutely and the you know just worth reminding the listeners that about 40 percent at least 40 percent of tech founders companies vcs here in the uk banked with svp within within the tech ecosystem that option now is thrown under question again because it's been taken over by hsbc and you would speak to people and they say look we just wouldn't we weren't able to open bank accounts at other banks svp would bank us what are the next steps? And again, adding on another layer of challenges for this ecosystem, given that funding is already challenging. Now, I, sp I spoke to some VCs last week at the Bloomberg Invest Summit here, and they said, look, long medium to long term, they still think they're very optimistic about the opportunities in the UK and the opportunities for tech uh, in, in, in Europe. And they think that actually you could see a kind of a rationalisation of the space, a lot of cheap money, a lot of cheap liquidity flowing into, into tech, of course, over the last few, t few years. That is changing. They think longer term that's going to lead to a healthier space. It was interesting to hear... Um uh, in the Treasury Committee this morning, Andrew Bailey talking about the desire desirability of getting the big banks more into the startup space. And, you know, obviously, uh, as you say, many of the ring fence banks just haven't been able to do this before because they're, they're not able to take on that much risk. And in this specific case, there's been a slight hole made in the ring fencing regime to allow HSBC to take on that risk. Um, whether that is, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, Keith Skiosh is, is doing his review of the ring fencing regime at the moment, whether that's something that's explored, um, you know, Andrew Bailey was saying it. it's good that it's being debated. Lisa, I want to ask you about the wider banking situation. When you work at Bloomberg, your friends always say to you, are things safe? Is there <laughs> going to be another banking crash? Uh, and I tend to sort of fudge the issue and I say, you know, things are very different to how they were 15 years ago, but you can never be quite certain when it comes to banks and lots of debt. But the, the situation, the regulatory picture is is very different, isn't it? To, Absolutely. To, to 2007. Yeah, it's interesting though, because I mean, you know, there are a lot of things changing, as you, as you said, you know, um, Andrew Bailey said this morning, that technology, you know, the fact that we, you know, have more online banking now, um, that increases the speed at which you can have a bank run. Um, and he, but, he said he said that you know this this circumstance with with SVB was one of the you know fastest runs that that they've seen. Yeah, and the numbers are absolutely incredible, aren't they? That that it's billions in the mm. space of a few hours, one day. So I think that has shocked everyone. On the other side, I'll be a bit uh, cheeky and say. 
Look, the whole point is that the high street banks have been getting rid of branches at a speed of knots in order to get everybody into online banking. Nobody thought and about the stickiness of yeah. people's... Um, well, and also it's, it's to do with business funds also and how sticky they I are. I think this is really interesting. And I think we really need to watch this, actually, because the speed at which you can move your savings now mm. is quite incredible. So you remember the, the scenes 15 years ago, queues outside Northern Rock. It all looks so uh, ancient now if you watch the pictures of people queuing outside a bank. Now, if there is some uh, run on the bank, people just turn on their smartphone and within 15 seconds they can move their money. I think this is a big, big problem for the banks, which we're going to hear uh, more about. Uh, I've noticed it myself because, you know, I've got a little bit of money in savings and one bank emails me and says they're now paying another 0.2%. I just move the money. It takes me a second. So it's become very, very easy to shift your money around. And that is going to be an issue for the banks. Absolutely. And it's it's one of the things that uh, John Cunliffe at the Bank of England has brought up when talking about central bank digital currencies, you know, the, what's been dubbed as Bitcoin. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's it, it, you know, it gives people an alternative to put their money into when, when there is a run on a bank. Uh, and, you know, it will perhaps even increase the speed at which they can swap their money out of, you know, a bank deposit and into a, an alternative asset. So we heard these comments from Jane Fraser, the CEO of Citi speaking to to Bloomberg earlier this week and saying just she would she was she found it remarkable and that was for her one of the key takeaways was the speed at which this happened so it brings us back to the regulatory question and whether the tools need to be rejigged to react to this new landscape mm. and in the UK and I know Caroline you speak to a lot of the founders of some of these upcoming fledgling UK bank startups here yes. as well and a big yeah. part of their proposition is we can bank you more easily we can bank you on your mobile phone we have the interface the UX is fantastic that was the proposition so those well, challenger banks starling monzo yes, all, and others and we've spoken to a number of those zopa bank lots of of those but the the flip side of that the speed and the kind of they're, they're trying to offer higher interest rates to savers you know to come on board the flip side though is you know you speak to the natwest chairman as howard davies and he says it's, it's negligible it's not having i mean and he would because that's you know he's a he's a high street bank but on the other hand he says no it's not having a material impact on them the sort of size anyway i digress the other thing that I want to ask Lucy about um, is this idea around the over 50s. Now, this cock has had so much attention. Um, <laughs> the governor's comments yesterday, because he gave a speech last night mm-hmm. ahead of this um, hearing today. He was talking to the London School of Economics, to students. And he was talking about how over 50s aren't just um, uh, quitting the labour market they are stopping working young and then they are still spending money um is it all the fault of boomers well this is the thing so i mean we've all we've always had this well we've had this theory for a few years now uh, you know it's been relatively widely held by economists that um you know as uh, the population ages interest rates will be lower because there just won't be the same inflationary pressures um you know older people tend not to you know spend quite the same proportion of their of, of their income as younger people um you know many of them have already got you know assets houses so on um and so the idea was that, that, that the aging population would mean lower interest rates uh you know over the long term now obviously what we've seen in the short term is the entire opposite of that we've seen red hot inflation we've seen older people retiring 
earlier, which has put pressure on the labour market. So people have been having to, offer, you know, employers have been having to offer higher wages to keep, you know, everyone in the labour market. Um, and then we've had those older people also spending all of the pandemic savings that they, uh, you know, saved during lockdowns and so on. So it, it's complicated matters somewhat. It's nice the inflationary double whammy from the over 50s. Yeah. I just, I just want to say, producer James has written your fault, Boomer, in capital letters in, in, in the script. I, I wonder if we're being a little bit unfair on Boomers here. Goodness, I'm getting myself also into a corner now defending Boomers. Uh, but in, in fairness to them, if they all stop spending, then that's going to have a big problem with growth, isn't it? So we, we, you can't have it both ways. You can't blame them for spending and then blame them for not spending. Well, we also have a sluggish economy as well as inflation. Exactly. So. We've got this tension, haven't we, between the fiscal mon- fiscal policy and monetary policy. We've got monetary policy trying to control inflation, tighten, um, you know, get us back on a, in a in a two percent inflationary world, um, and then we've got fiscal policy trying to boost the economy in any way possible while not fueling inflation anymore. Mm. So uh, there is, you know, a trade off to be made there. I think. Also, I have to be said, I don't think that the over 50s, uh, do they, they just about scrape into the boomer generation, <laughs> but only just. I mean, you know, this no, is yeah. you know, 50, 55 now is actually, um, you know, the turning point, isn't it, in terms of uh, generationally. Um, I want to kind of add into this. I mean, there's still a question mark around the over 50s, whether they're retiring early because they've got loads of savings or whether it's about illness or whether it's about um, taking care of young children because of the cost of childcare here in the mm-hmm. UK. You know, there's still lots of questions about what we know about that. But the Bank of England still seems quite keen that those over 50s do go back to work. Is that the upshot, Lucy? I think they're keen, but I think, you know, a lot of people are very dubious that the over 50s who have left the uh, workforce are, are going to come back in any on any sort of meaningful scale. Um, you know, we've, 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 we've had... Mm. Um, Jeremy Hunt's policies, you know, around childcare, trying to get more younger people, especially women, back into the workforce because there are currently, you know, several million women out of uh, out of work who say that they're they're not look, working or looking for a job due to childcare and you know looking after their family responsibilities. So, you know, everyone's looking at different ways to bring these people back, but you know, unless these over 50s who have left the workforce realize in a few years that their you know household finances quite on on the on the level footing that they hope they might be then i highly doubt that many of them are going to come back we're, we're raising the the tax free contributions for pensions as well to get older doctors back in exactly which is a controversial policy I mean, but that, that, the, the emphasis it. from the Chancellor was we want these these older, more experienced doctors to come back. Yeah. And that's, that's why we're change, making those changes. And it, as you said, it is controversial. You know, uh, several think tanks and economists that I've spoken to have said if that was really what you wanted to do, you could have focused the policies on doctors. Of course, it's actually being taken up by bankers, uh, senior people in finance. Um, you know, it, it and it doesn't do much to alleviate the pressure on um, those lower skilled areas of the labour market either. Yeah. Lucy, thank you so much for being with us. Our UK economics reporter, Lucy White. Lovely to have you in the radio studio uh, today. Well, speaking of those over 50s, uh, research by 55 Redefined suggests that actually almost a third of over 50s who have retired have felt forced out, have felt forced to retire. Uh, And Lindsay Simpson is the founder and CEO of the charity that is championing more positive attitudes towards getting these older workers back into the workforce. Um, Leanne Gerens and I have been speaking to her and we asked her what the main issue is when it comes to helping people to work longer. What the world has failed to do is catch up with the fact that we have added 30 healthy years to life expectancy 
in the last century alone. So those people that are entering their 50th and 60th decade right now are pioneers, quite frankly. They can't follow in their parents' footsteps. They sometimes think that they should, and they think that they should be retiring in their mid-60s as their parents did. But when they find themselves at that age group, they realise that they're healthier, wealthier, enjoying work, enjoying life, and have got 30 plus more years of life expectancy and want to continue to work. And we just need to really bring the world up to speed with that and make sure that employers and colleagues and people of all generations understand what this means for them and their businesses. Your research also shows that two-thirds of over 50s predict age will actually work against them in the whole recruitment process. Why does this stereotype still exist and how do people look for new jobs if they want to? What's the path forward? Yeah, you're right. And and yeah, we've, we've done um, quite a bit of research on this topic. And for example, some of the stereotypes that still exist, the most prevalent one is that over 50s are still more likely to get ill. And so we found that 37% of employers would not consider an older candidate to apply for them because they falsely assumed that they were going to get ill more often. And the COVID pandemic obviously has not helped that with the mass media presentation of over 50s as vulnerable. What we do is with everything is fight it back with data. So an employee in their 50s is actually 200% less likely to take a day off work sick than an employee under 30. And likewise, Mm. we see that recruiters either within businesses or recruiters within agencies um, are significantly biased based on their own age. So if I'm a recruiter looking at a CV and I'm aged 25 to 30, I am 39% less likely to present that CV to the hiring manager than a recruiter that's aged 45 to 50, because I perceive then they're not going to be deemed as talent. Um, And this this does have um, unusual consequences, actually. So it goes against the grain of some of the typically discriminated groups. And in fact, what we see is the most overtly discriminated group is white middle-aged men, where they are overtly told that they simply cannot apply for jobs because they don't fit the niche diversity criteria, which is obviously the opposite to inclusion. Okay, let me put the other perspective. There has been a tremendous increase, actually, in the average age of a CEO. There's been a huge increase, uh, 10, 15 years, in the average age of anyone sitting in senior management. Um, You know, if I were a young one now, I'd look at the age of Joe Biden, of US lawmakers, of ageing lawmakers in Europe, of the fact that home ownership is, you know, uh, becoming... (laughs) ever more exclusive to older generations. And I'd say, you know, the, the, the over 50s, over 60s have got it really, really good. Yeah, and, and it's a fair challenge that we hear a lot of the time. But actually, again, it's a false one. So when you look at organisations, you're right, at the top of that pyramid, at the top of the organisation, they do over-index for older employees, and that is getting older. What we're seeing, though, is going in the opposite direction at the entry levels in those businesses. So in terms of frontline roles, contact centres, customer services, trainees, apprenticeships, or what I would call the LinkedIn middle, so the people 
people that aren't in C-suite or aren't independent consultants, but are still, you know, mid-level in marketing or product or financial services, they still need to continue to work and, and they will have to for their financial uh, well-being. Um, and, and those individuals are stereotyped out because people make a false assumption mm. that age equals income. And therefore, if you're older, you're more expensive. But again, we know that 89% of over 50s will take a pay cut to retrain into a new sector, a new role. So I just want to ask you one thing, Lindsay. You've been chatting to Caroline and you've touched on pensions. Now, obviously, we had the budget recently. They're now pension tax breaks. And... This will mean that 15,000 people, according to research, are going to be entering the workforce. But it's going to cost £80,000 each for every person who they get back into the workforce who have left it. Is this really value for money? Is this bang for buck? Is this what we need to be doing? Yeah, there's, well, there's a couple of issues at stake here, really. So one of the incentives around uh, and the rationale really around why we need to get people back into work was the, the point you made really at the opening of the segment If is a company, if you don't have an age strategy, you don't have a growth strategy. So whether we like the statistics or not, we are ageing as a population in all Western nations. And so over the course of the next 25 years, our working age population is shrinking by between 25 and 28% whereas our over 60s population grows at over 40%. So if you are an organisation that's growing, then you simply cannot keep targeting just young people because there is a shrinking pool of that, that audience year on year on year. And so your options are to then import talent from overseas, which obviously for your UK listeners will know that that has become a significant challenge post-Brexit, or to automate and remove humans from the process altogether. Um, But even where we're seeing automation, what we're seeing is that's creating a pool of skilled roles and skilled vacancy shortages that's crippling employers. So there is a cost associated with bringing people back into the workforce. Um, However, it is a cost that is essential for us to add £20 million back into the UK economy, just if we half the gap of people that were aged between 50 and 65 returning. Um, We did a lot of work lobbying the DWP and the Treasury on these points, and we were pleased to see some of those pension things come through. But we did also lobby for a national insurance benefit to employers, because we believe that actually there should be some incentives to employers to rehire and reskill the older worker population. Um, But sadly, we didn't see that come through in this budget announcement. So that was Lindsay Simpson there, the founder and CEO of uh, the charity 55 Redefined. So it looks as if everybody's uh, got early retirement as a target and a (laughs) no-no. Yeah, immigration, one of the things Lindsay Lindsay mentioned there. That will be one of the topics today at the Liaison Committee. The Prime Minister will be up before the uh, Star Chamber of MPs. Happens three times a year. Budget economic issues, migrants arriving on small boats and the Windsor Framework, the three Uh, key issues. Watch uh, for headlines from that. Yeah, no doubt we'll be back uh, with more on that tomorrow. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Mariful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Tom McKenzie. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. 
And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.